0: Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 5th of March with myself, Andres Fontana and my colleagues, Simon Thompson, Peter White, and Harry Morgan. I thought the issue was was one
1: of the best we've done. and I think if we've kind of set ourselves a, a task about six months ago <laughs> yeah. of using more data that we have produced ourselves to reach new and surprising and different conclusions that mm. across the whole landscape. And, you know, here we had the, the figures for... Um, Global solar, uh, counting up by ourselves. Um, That analysis of uh, Vietnam and all of its difficulties uh, with its build out. Um, Obviously, we launched a new report, the look back in anger, uh, as if you're at 2050 and uh, on, on what had happened report which is which is a big model uh, which took a while to build and then the house democrats then decided to launch heavily into their green agenda uh, that you know this week and it went on and the, the chip shortage was well analyzed by by Harry uh, I mean, this this is an industry going through a lot of change. That's ma- massive. Let's, I mean, we don't need to spend long on, on the lead story. I mean, if effectively, that that's just some numbers from... The, the trouble is doing a, a global energy model to 2050, taking in uh, steel, cement, EVs, and uh, transformation in home heat. It's a lot of work, and you could pick any one of those areas to dig into in a lot of detail. The biggest problems in pulling that report together is not knowing really the, the route that home heat is going to go, and whether or not people really will be able to drive down the price of hydrogen so they can treat it as if it's natural gas. Interestingly, uh, Harry and I were talking yesterday about doing some work on the oil majors and their futures, and, uh, and I, I mentioned about liquid natural gas. As I've been building up a file on it, it just seems a very turbulent industry and pricing is very, uh, we talk blithely about $2.50 a kilogram for hydrogen and whether this can ever equate to, uh, and this is the kind of turning point for uh, replacing natural gas. And then you look at the the way natural gas is priced, it it travels over the world and it, it costs a fortune to gasify and uh, liquefy it and then gas regasify it and then put it on a, a ship the idea that there's global markets in some of these uh, uh, the extractive industries seems a nonsense given that the prices that were at anyway so that was just uh, you know one glip, one aspect of, of that report and the spreadsheets i could carry on writing stories off of those numbers for weeks and weeks and i probably will that's you know hopefully lots of people buy into that report all of our customers are pleased with it oh we had a, an inquiry for it already immediately from one of our customers who have alerted all of their internal customers that it's coming and please can they have it by monday that's nice nice to know that people are watching on to those figures for global solar how do they stack up against other people's uh injuries? Uh, I think they might be, yeah, they're a bit bigger than
0: others, but
1: not not hugely so. You know, we're only counting the same things that other people are counting, surely. I mean, surely we get all the, most of that data from official
0: sources. Yeah, most of it. And uh, the rest is w- where it's unavailable. Which Weirdly, Japan is one of the ones where it's unavailable. I think they don't even have a single frequency on their grid. I think they still have two frequencies and 10 main utilities. So we do have to use pipelines or extrapolations or stuff like that in, in that case. They have two grids and they run at different frequencies. That's correct. Yeah, for for the most part, the data uh, the data's come in, certainly from the big places like uh, China. Although weirdly, the, the uh, what the U.S. Internal Energy Administration, the IEA, I can't remember what it's called now. Its figures are always incomplete. I think especially for rooftops. So again, we had to look at how much is incomplete by usually, and some other you know sources of data for that.
1: Well, well, well you get the solar, uh, um, the SCIA, is it the uh, industry association? Their, their numbers are always different from from the, the EIA. Yeah,
0: I did I did look at theirs as well.
1: But I trust the EIA numbers because you know, that's the official number, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't. I, I think just Wood McKenzie has privileged access to the inflated SEIA number, and, and I suspect that it's uh, it's not measured on the same basis. So where's this going next next year? Next year
0: and the year after? For this for this year, I think 160 is absolutely just the basic number I mean it has to be more than that if it's been 146 this year uh, the past year like we discussed I think last week or the week before there's this polysilicon limit which I think will kick in uh, definitely it'll kick in by 190 gigawatts and also you've got this um, this idea of uh, places like
1: India which we'll come to in a minute that um, that might be making their own polysilicon
0: so they may not be limited by the amount of polysilicon that's being made in China I haven't seen uh, polysilicon for, for India. Actually, I think I think it's harder to make polysilicon profitable than the other ones. Maybe you need more scale. I, I, I get think
1: you need understand. a centralized government, uh, you know, controlling government to say we're going to build our own. Otherwise, you you're, you're right. It doesn't economically grow. You can you, you'll be better off doing other things to make
0: money. Yeah, and for, for now, the uh, the Indian government is incentivizing the private sector. It's not going all the way into. Building polysilicon, and I think it's also skewed towards modules. I think I think they're more interested in taking over all of the module space before the stuff that's in between polysilicon and modules, the the components like cells and wafers. They will, they are building some wafer and cell capacity. I just don't think it's quite as much. But while we're
1: on the subject, we might as well go into it. the news this week was that they uh, they've actually come out and said they're going to put a 40% customs duty on Chinese solar modules.
0: And uh, they they actually didn't put this in their budget, which was recent. And I think that's because maybe they're still vacillating about quite how big it will be. I think it has to be 40 percent on modules and it probably also has to be 25 percent on cells. Otherwise, it just won't be enough. They're thinking about how long it'll last for. I think it has to be at least five years. And they're also thinking about when they're actually going to implement it from because if they just do this instantly, then 80% of Chinese, uh, of, of Indian modules come from China right now, and it'll just cause chaos. And they're just, they're still recovering from last year, um, their solar industry, where all the supply chain was disrupted. The, the labor from all the, all the villages was disrupted by lockdowns. They uh, installed less than half of what they normally do. So they want to give it a rest. They don't want to do something really harsh. But the truth
1: is that the, the Chinese industry seems to be government subsidized. Um, when you look at the margins, when they were public, you could look at their numbers and they didn't seem to make commercial sense, which is why a lot of them stopped being public. Um, And they seem to be subsidised centrally, and in order to take a long view on the market, we're going to win this market and own it. And I think that's where a lot of the resentment and a lot of the wanting to put customs duty and tariffs on their panels comes from, is that they're doing it uneconomically for a long-term goal, and why should we we suffer loss of control of our solar industry and, and the market? And it's, so you can take two views of this. Either India is insane to try to both double down on the amount of solar it installs and create its own native industry overnight, or it's actually China that's insane for driving prices so low and so aggressively that it's bankrupted every other um, solar manufacturing market on the planet, I think there's there's a bit of there's a bit of truth to each. Uh,
0: and uh, India had some pretty brutal border clashes with China.
1: Does that uh, so does that
0: make does that really make any difference to w- whether or not they're going to buy and sell chi- solar to, to I China? I think I think it is a bit. I think it would actually play on their minds to have to be dependent on China for their next big power industry um, in that circumstance.
1: Yeah, I mean there were border clashes between China and Russia uh, five or ten years ago, and they they're happy to trade trade gas with them. Mm. Uh, trade is one thing, but, but the border sensibilities are all political, mm. and trade is not political. Just talk about global um, global markets. What what's what's the chip fiasco, Harry? What what's that about this this week?
2: So yeah, no, I mean the chip fiasco is, is it's been very focused on on the US market in terms of the, the media coverage, but it's definitely a global issue. I mean we've got um, from the US we've got GM and Ford have both announced massive uh, factory closures. Well. The same factory closures they're either like limiting their capacity or shutting down plants entirely but we've seen the same from ford i've seen the same from stellantis as well as vw in europe even neo in china for its electric vehicle so it is it, very much a global problem um
1: interestingly last week when tesla uh, shut down for uh, one of its its manufacturing lines for uh, five or six days all the social media was talking about how um, it hasn't got enough orders its models broken and then oh, a week later, when all the other um, manufacturers own up to the same thing, um, you
2: know, yeah, oh, you know, it's fine. It's, it's 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 a semiconductor issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, but it, it's a, it's a huge issue. They reckon there's going to be about at least a million cars delayed from quarter one this year into quarter two. Which, when you consider sort of the average cost of a new vehicle is around forty thousand uh, dollars worldwide, that's around forty billion in revenue for the automotive industry. So it, it's. It's a significant issue. I mean, we've seen uh, Joe Biden sort of it mark around sort of 37 billion to, to jumpstart the US's chip manufacturing industry again. So it's definitely on their minds. I mean, so there's several causes really behind it. First, you've got this massive rise that we've seen through lockdowns of consumer electronics. I think there's around sort of an eight. They
1: don't use the same chips as a, a personal computer or a, a, or a grid server, do they?
2: They don't use the same chips, but they use the same production lines. So it's very much a choice between this, of the semiconductor manufacturers of where they're going to alloc- allocate their resources because there's more profit for chip makers in consumer electronics just purely based on the cost they're prepared to pay per unit. We've seen a lot of the semiconductor manufacturers actually sort of prefer preferring to go down this um, consumer electronic route. Uh, and the fact that there's been an 8.4% increase in demand this year, we've seen a lot of this sort of flow towards things like the PlayStation 5 and mobile phones and away from the automotive industry. And Uh, and
1: all of the actual uh, Silicon, actually where they make the chips they're
2: all in china i presume yeah, the, the, and the, then, aren't there
1: are only about four or five foundries in the world i think two of them are in taiwan and as you say a couple in china
2: so china so this is this was a really this is a really interesting dynamic of it Actually, china is really not that responsible for chip manufacturing itself uh, or semiconductor manufacture there's it's mainly actually in sort of Taiwan and South Korea. I mean, one of China's largest imports is actually chips. This is something we've really seen over the past sort of year or so, is that China's really starting to try and ramp up its self-reliance in chip, manu- chip manufacturing, we've been ordering all sorts of equipment to make its own chips. And as a result, we've seen people like uh, TSMC really trying to sort of build its presence in the US to sort of counteract that. So there is this sort of sudden boom in interest to actually Increase production capacity um, and sort of hold onto market share, especially with sort of an, a huge amount of Chinese players that will probably start to sort of edge their way into the market.
0: It, it says yeah. in your article actually 380 billion of imports of chips to China in 2020, uh, and almost 20% of their total imports.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it's absolutely no wonder with China being so um, self reliant like in other industries that they're trying to to boost their own production capacity.
0: Are, are other countries going to develop their own chip uh, infrastructure? Perhaps further Taiwan and that sort of place.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think this is something that we've we've seen is there's much more sort of nationalism around chip manufacture, and I think the the sort of big story behind it is this sort of US-China sort of trade war continuing really in the background. I mean the US has sanctioned China's SMIC um, and their chip manufacturer Huawei has uh, been blacklisted from any access to US technology so there's that real sort of friction there and you've seen people like TSMC really caught up in the middle of it and not really able to provide components to certain products. Um, certain products. Yeah it is very much a political issue as well and, I, and the, even the EU sort of trying to sort of work out how it's going to get around it so that its automakers can actually continue to thrive after what really has been a very difficult year for them.
1: Most of the chip designers are, are American. Most of the foundries, as you say, Taiwanese. And what's, what does Taiwan have that um, you can't find anywhere else? Sort of government and some tax breaks. So you could get that in India, you, but, but there is no um, similar uh, relationship in India. You could get that in the Philippines. Um, you can get that in Mexico, but it hasn't happened uh, because every time someone sets up in opposition to, say, TSMC, um, they set, they give them better terms and they just make it more financially attractive to stay where they are.
2: Yeah, no, it's hu- it's, huge to, it's usually to do with these government subsidies of, in terms of industry. I mean, it's really expensive to actually set up um, semiconductor production lines and it takes quite a long time. I mean, that's one of the other issues we've seen is that the lead time to actually build out new production capacity isn't what the automotive sector has been used to. I mean, the automotive sector is very used to sort of building out capacity sort of just in time for production, whereas actually having that sort of foresight uh, for semiconductors is something that they haven't been able to do. When through COVID-19 they actually canceled loads of chip orders because they expect sort of a massive dip in, in sales. And as, that sort of, as those sales increase more rapidly than they thought, that's where the sort of shortages come in, especially while consumer electronics companies are actually stockpiling uh, their chip stock.
1: Yeah, I mean, how much, when you talk about consumer electronics, how much of this is phones? You know, T- TSMC makes all the Apple chips. Yeah, Samsung makes its, well, Samsung does make its own chips. Samsung went through a long period of, internally, it was just treated like another supplier. And so it often um, supplied, it often used other people's chips in it. But over the last seven or eight years, they've, they've tried to bring most of that in-house, so the big phone manufacturers it's it's you know taiwan for apple and and korea for uh, everything else they obviously have chips in um, in the chinese phones that are um, locally produced they have their own foundries in china for that
2: yeah, so I mean, it's, it's around thirty percent of the um, of the semiconductor market is earmarked for the consumer electronics industry. Uh, for, for the automotive and the automotive sector, comparatively, is much smaller, about sort of half of that. Um, and then, as, as, I mean, actually, the largest sector is is sort of data processing electronics, obviously something that's going to be rising much more. It's a huge it's a huge industry, and the automotive sector is only only a part of it. But considering the automotive industry is so reliant on it now, it's a massive issue in terms of these companies moving forward, and will become an increasing issue as we sort of shift towards electric vehicles.
1: I think it's all about sophistication of the car. I mean, five, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, we were looking at very minor, minor chips, which were doing things, they were just giving you a, a reading on the outside temperature, on the condition of a brake, level of braking fluid, things like that. They were distributed and they did small jobs. It was more like IoT with some kind of centralised hub. And they've become more sophisticated as we've got become, gone electric. And obviously, as there's an attempt to make cars ki- communicate to the outside world to uh, give their telemetry up to um, to a network we've started to get more centralized control of all the chips more powerful chips and and as you go to self-driving cars much more powerful supercomputer supercomputers class chips on board so it's the changing sophistication of the uh, car market I think